This is an ABC podcast. The word heroic is a bit like the word iconic. It's a word that's been so overused that much of its meaning has been drained from it. But today you're going to hear the story of some people who were actually, truly heroic. Author Michael Veach is here today to tell you the story of a group of Australian men and women living in tropical outposts in the Pacific during World War II who operated in secret, existing in the jungle under insane conditions and in absolute terror of being discovered by the enemy at any moment. And most of these men and women weren't even officially in the Australian Armed Forces, to begin with at least. These were the coast watches of the Pacific. After the war, Australia really failed to give them their due, but the Americans revered them and honoured them. This is an amazing story. It's told with real panache by Michael Veach, and it's called Australia's Secret Army. Welcome back, Michael. Hey, Richard. Lovely to be here. When did you first learn about the coast watches of World War II? It was actually in a previous book I wrote about the Battle of the Bismarck Sea, which was an air action in early 1943 that we took part in. And Admiral Halsey, the kind of Navy Supremo of America... The Fighting Admiral. The Fighting Admiral. And after the war, he gave an interview to a Brisbane newspaper on the first anniversary of the Battle of Guadalcanal. And he said, well, of course, the uh, thing you've got to remember about Guadalcanal, it was the Coast Watchers who saved Guadalcanal and Guadalcanal saved the Pacific. And I read that. And I went, what? what the, the Coast Watchers? And I went into the story and this, as you say, this incredible world opened up. I've written a few books on this subject. Never have I had the experience of the complete elevated exposure of what I knew at the time and what I ended up knowing. It was absolutely astronomical because it's a completely untold story and it's an astonishing one. Let's talk about the origin of the Coast Watchers. This starts really in the 1920s. This is after World War I when Australia found itself in possession of some formerly German yeah. colonies yes. in the South Pacific. Not many Australians are aware of this, but we were actually Australia. Not Britain was the colonial power in New Guinea. It's completely bizarre. We uh, had our we, empire. We had an empire. We had a little mini empire. Well, even before <laughs> that, Queensland of its own bat went and basically annexed Port Moresby because they had a premier who was a very imperialist and who was coming up for election, he said, I know what I'll do. I'll, I'll, I'll go and get a colony. What did the British think of that? They hated it. They hated that. Well, well, first he asked the, the colonial office in London, can I do this? And they said, no, don't be ridiculous. We'll, we don't want this place. And he did it anyway. He actually rang up his policeman friend <laughs> on Thursday Island and said, look, go to Port Moresby and just plant the flag and claim it for the empire. And he did it and then presented to the United States to the UK as a, as a fait accompli. So that was the beginning of it. But then, of course, after World War One, they started to realise that German ships were sort of sailing up and down the, uh, the Australian coast at will, basically sort of blowing raspberries to the Australian defences, such as what they were at that time. And a report after the war put out by the very nascent uh, Nav Australian Naval Intelligence Organisation said that we estimate that on many, many parts of the Australian coast, particularly in the northwest, an enemy army of a division strong could land and establish themselves on the Australian coast and we wouldn't realise they were there for a month. <laughs> <laughs> they could land at Broome. Yeah, Broome. <clears throat> oh, Broome. Take your pick. Anywhere. Right. And, Port, Port and Hedland, Broome, Caratha, around there. We that'd wouldn't be that. know right. they were even there for months. So there's that we, look, we've actually got to do something about this because this is the time when the Australian Defence Forces were being shrunk after the war and there were the Royal Australian Air Force was formed and that took some of the budget and the Army and Navy were furious at that. So it was very competitive and very uncooperative between the three services. And, and we were a country of like five, six, seven million people at the time. There's not a lot of people. Around seven, giant, yes. Right, yeah, this, yeah. this giant land. At the same same time, Japan had picked up some Pacific yeah. colonies after the Treaty of Versailles. They were well. playing a very, very long game, going back to the to, to, to the great forcing open of Japan in the late nineteenth century. Then, particularly, Japan's long game started around the Russo-Japanese War. Now, they'd been an ally 
part of the yes. Allies in World War One. Yeah. Nonetheless, how was Australian concerned was Australia's Prime Minister Billy Hughes about Japan acquiring imperial possessions in the Pacific? Yes, he was very vociferous and very, very concerned. And I found some letters that he wrote to the colonial office sort of screaming, Japan's a long way from you, but it's very close to us. And they are building ships and they are building aircraft and they're building all sorts of things. And they have a long game. They've just acquired all these places. They, they were basically given to them after Versailles. I mean, they acquired places like Truck Lagoon in the middle of Micronesia or the Caroline Islands, I think it was called then, natural deep water harbour that then formed the hub of their Central Pacific base and that they had it before the war. So, yes, they were playing a very long game and Australia started to realise this and realise that we've got no defences across that whole arc of that vast coast. We didn't have any armed forces personnel to man it, so they came across this idea, why don't we just use the people who were there in situ, uh, plant, people who were establishing some plantations up there, growing coffee and copra and rubber all through the islands of New Guinea and off some in, in, into the Solomons as well, colonial administrators, policemen, missionaries, and just basically ask them, not offering them any money, by the way, but ask them just to keep an eye on things. Well, to, just to appeal to their Australian patriotism. Absolutely, then. absolutely. And it worked. And uh, slowly, the Coast Watcher, it was called the Coast Watcher Organisation, sort of uh, in the mid-1920s, established itself. It was a very stop-start organisation. It was based out of Melbourne. It then vanished for a few years because the Navy rearranged itself. And, and the Great Depression hit as well, so money great, wasn't around to be spent, you know. Depression hit. Yes. But coming up to the years of the Second World War, they started to realise, oh, heck, we actually <laughs> we've got nothing up there. And the people... People who knew what was happening knew that Japan was going to be coming into the war at some stage. And was Australia ever really running these colonies, Michael, or was it just like a couple of blokes in khaki shorts and a radio? I mean, in Port Moresby, was it? Sort of. Well, well, you see, Rabaul, Port Moresby wasn't the capital then. That was Rabaul. On the island of New Britain. Of the island of yeah. New Britain, a magnificent natural deep water port. At the sort of top tip of this banana-shaped island is this port of Rabaul, which the Germans established because it was part of their Kaiser Wilhelm's land. They called it when they had it as a colony. But, but the local people living up in the, you know, Owen Stanley Ranges of New Guinea or in the Sepik River of New Guinea, yeah. w- would they have noticed any material difference to their lives, if, given that Australia is now saying, well, this is this is our territory now? Yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, often those parts of the world are still some of the most remote places on Earth, particularly the highlands of New Guinea. And I, th- I think still in the 1970s, they were discovering tribes of people that had never had any contact, not just with white people and Westerners, but with other pa- other tribes in New Guinea as well, completely self-contained little mini micro-civilizations. Um, currency was brought in. They were paid in New Guinea shillings. But yeah. we never really had more than a toehold in these places. Not really, no, no, right. no. You, you couldn't. They were simply too vast. It, it wasn't like you could occupy it. You kind of went there, you sort of um, sent a few hundred people up to sort of occupy some of the major towns. And Put they, in a ceiling fan, maybe. Absolutely. Yeah, lots it. of um, cane hats and lots of gin and tonics, lots of affairs happening and people having a kind of, you know, lotus-eating colonial lifestyle and and also over in this Solomons that kind of happened too but this all kind of changed when Japan entered the war. The key figure in setting up the Coast Watchers around these islands that Australia had picked up was a man named Eric Felt. Tell me about this man and what an extraordinary figure he was. He was an extraordinary person Felt, Queenslander, son of Swedish immigrants in the late 19th century, mid late 19th century. He worked on his father's sugar cane property near Mackay. I think he he grew up, he was a very smart kid and he his parents were smart enough to know the value of education and they enrolled him in the very first intake of the Royal Australian Navy officer cadet intake in 1912 and he was he was the only Queenslander accepted <laughs> Uh, Felt served in the Royal Australian Navy in World War I, didn't do much, was over in the North Sea on a big battleship called the Canada, which was basically the RN was too terrified to let out of the water. He came back to Australia disillusioned. He wanted to stay in the Navy because he loved being at sea and he realised there was no prospects of particularly an interesting career ahead of him. So he put his hand up to be one of this new breed of sort of frontier people living and working in these new Australian colonies, i.e. 
New Guinea and its surrounding islands. So he became a, a patrol officer. And at the very beginning of the war, another of one of his mates from that first intake of cadets in 1912 happened to be Lieutenant Commander Cocky Long was his name, and he was the head of naval intelligence, and he was the overall boss of the Coast Watcher organisation, but no one was running it. And apparently Long looked down the list of the people that had just put their name back on the Navy list and said, oh, my gosh, Eric Felt, I know him. He's been in New Guinea. He's the one I want to head up this organisation. He's a good egg, and he just happened to be on leave in Brisbane. And so they found his hotel and uh, gave him an airline ticket and a telegram saying, come down to Melbourne. Uh, for a secret meeting and he went to St Kilda Road Barracks met his old mate and said well actually I've got you here because we need you to form this organisation that exists now but it's not really doing anything and we need you to go through these islands and gather as many people that you can rely on and who you all know personally into this organisation and we'll support them and all they have to do is basically keep an eye on our northern border and that was the genesis of really the wartime coast watches. In going to these remote plantations on the, on the yeah. coast of New Guinea and New Britain, New Ireland and the Solomons and the like, yeah. in going around to those places and shaking hands and making making contact. Did he give them, like, weapons training or no, combat training no, no, at no. all? Absolutely not. In fact, because he Because war was coming, wasn't it? War, war was coming, and it was possible that the thought had into their head. No one knew how successful the Japanese were going to be, no. but, but there was the prospect that they could end up behind enemy lines if they stayed where they were. They didn't think it was even a remote possibility, and Felt said, we're not... We're not belligerents, we're simply observers. So you're not getting weapons training, you're not getting military training, you're not not even going to be in the military, you're effectively spies, but he never used that word because that had terribly dangerous connotation. Now, later they did have to be drawn into the aegis of the Australian Defence Forces with this vague idea that giving them some kind of nominal military officer rank will afford them more protection if captured by the Japanese. But they'd be treated like POWs, probably, not just summarily executed. How were they to transmit their reports? So if they were there, Mm. posted somewhere on the northern coast of New Guinea or or New Ireland or whatever, and they'd seen enemy activity or suspicious activity, that's all very well, but how are they actually going to make a report that would be received in Port Moresby and then in Canberra? So, enter the AWA Teleradio Mark II. Essentially a radio, but the weight, size and dimensions of a small family car, (laughs) uh, which had to be traipsed up and down the mountains of Bougainville, uh, Guadalcanal. Now, I'm I'm just laughing at that, but this was actually quite high tech for its time, wasn't it? It certainly was. Right. This was a valve radio broken down into several components, all of which were incredibly heavy, enamelled steel with rubber seals to keep the moisture out. There was a transmitter, a receiver. It was powered by literally two car batteries, the same weight as a current car battery. Two car batteries. Two car batteries, not one, but, but two that were linked together, plus a benzene petrol engine to charge up the batteries, a 30-foot radio aerial, a Morse key, a microphone. This thing weighed a tonne and it had to be broken down into uh, various components which had to be carried to actually transport it. But it more or less worked. It had a 400-mile range uh, with voice and had a 600-mile range with a Morse key and it kind of did the job. So this brings us now to December 1941, the attack on Pearl Harbour yes. and the sudden explosion of Imperial Japan into the Pacific. No one expected them to be so successful, so quickly into yes. cover, so many, so, such great vast distances in so short a period of time, least of all the Japanese themselves Indeed. in many ways. They attacked Pearl Harbour and then their forces crossed the equator into the southern hemisphere for the first time. Tell me how they commemorated this crossing from the northern hemisphere uh, into the southern hemisphere. Yes, the ships of the convoy heading south to take Rabaul. Indeed, the first Japanese armed forces to cross the equator into the southern hemisphere in something like a thousand years or something like that. And the ceremony, the dawn tea ceremony on board the ships 
where the men face towards Japan to bow towards the emperor as the sun was rising. It kind of puts the hairs up on the back of your neck when I was reading about this, but it was a profound ceremony and they knew that they were stepping very much into terra incognita. But this was the convoy that crossed the equator and was heading for Rabaul, which is the big hub of what they needed. That and Moresby were the two places they needed. And if they'd got both of them, that kind of would have wrapped them up. They kind of, all they needed to do was to control those waterways to the north of Australia. And they would have been happy with that because they they were never really going to invade Australia. They couldn't have done it even if they wanted to. They didn't have the, the means to do it. But all they had to do was to kind of checkmate us out of the, out of the equation. So the Japanese armada is heading for Rabaul. All sorts of armed forces are, an aircraft carrier as well. Yes. So, so they're all heading group. towards Rabaul, and this is an Australian yeah. possession at this time. Indeed, they guarded by one of the most tragic units of Australian armed forces, the so-called Lark Force, which was a battalion, near battalion strength, seven, 800 men. They arrived in mid-1941 under the uh, direction of a Colonel Scanlon, who'd been a World War I hero, but proved himself to be an utterly incompetent officer in these situations. These islands, like New Ireland and New Britain, I often think if there are dinosaurs somewhere living in the world, that's where they're going to be. Then and now, these islands are incredibly dense. Yeah, they've got remote. a touch of the Jurassic Parks about them, oh, don't they? Oh, it's absolute. Yeah. I kept yeah. thinking Jurassic Park, yeah. reading and seeing the images of where, about what these outlying islands... Some of the wildest jungle in the world, in maybe the, world. the wildest jungles in the world. Absolutely. And they sent this force there, uh, like force, as you say. Australia scrambled to send a force to defend it. But you say the defence of Rabaul by Australia is one of the worst debacles and the most shameful Absolute. debacles Utterly. in our military history. Why Utterly was it shameful. such a debacle? Well, firstly, they knew that the force they were uh, sending up there would be totally inadequate to defend it against even what they thought was a small Japanese force. It ended up being 5,000 Japanese uh, 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 troops landing at Rabaul in an amphibious invasion. And this poor, untrained battalion of men, Scanlon wouldn't even let them do any jungle training. They basically marched up and down the parade ground for sort of six months before the Japanese arrived. He wouldn't allow them any uh, means of it. Uh, it. It didn't allow them to explore any of the tracks going into the jungle. No. Why? No, Why? Because, Why oh, um, defeatist attitude, matey. Defeatist attitude. All that kind of thing. But you say Australia sent this battalion yeah, to they knowing they were inadequate. Knowing they so were they, inadequate. So, do you, are you saying that Australia consciously sent this battalion to die there? Uh, you, you, you can more or less extrapolate that. Uh, it was sent as a token force and they had a fairly fair idea that they would be sacrificed, but you couldn't leave it not defended. See, we'd gotten this situation where we'd totally ignored the warning signs was happening in this part of the world and all our, all our army and virtually all our air force was on the other side of the world and hadn't been brought back yet by um, Curtin. So they, yes, they were, there are letters that have been uncovered from people in the army saying, uh, you know, there's no way that Lark Force can do anything much. And we know that the Japanese are going to attack Rabaul in force because they need that port. And what do we do? Do we pull them away or do we keep them there? And they, no, no, we've got to keep them there. So, so now we come to the first major Coast Watcher operation. This is a Coast Watcher by the name of Con Page. Yeah. Tell me how he spotted the first sign of Japanese attack. On he was on New Island, uh, which was an even more remote island than New Britain. It's, unre- it's, a, it's another one of these long, strange-looking, long kind of line of an island that goes for a, a few hundred miles along, full of jungle. The Japanese coming down from their bases further north, places like Truck, which was conveniently, which is the one that they'd picked up in the middle of the Pacific. They took off from there, flew down, and they made landfall right over his Coast Watcher position on New Ireland and then made a left, a, a right-hand turn, sorry, to go and hit Rabaul. Initially, it was just reconnaissance aircraft in December, January, 941, 942, but then the uh, air, air attacks started to happen and he started reporting them. I'm just imagining what he would have seen from his observation post, Michael. A just, fleet of right. silver uh, dive bombers and Betty bombers flying overhead at altitude. They would have been descending 
uh, the Japanese flew brilliant V formations. They were very good formation flyers, and he would have recognised the markings. Oh on yes, the planes. oh yes. No, he, he he knew exactly what he was uh, he, he was looking at, and he could identify the aircraft types. He uh, got on his AWA tele radio, fired it up, and reported his findings directly to Port Moresby, who then transmitted it to Townsville, who then transmitted it to Canberra, and that's how the the intelligence was just disseminated. So Rabal was ready. The Australian forces on Rabaul were ready then for the the coming Japanese attack and well, but it didn't were, do them any good? No, it didn't do them any good and Australia's Air Force I mean, you know, the, the, the awful story of we had one pathetic squad, I think we had uh, it was 21 squadron Wiraways, the most useless aeroplane ever built and we built it <laughs> It was the first aeroplane we ever built. Australian made Australian yeah. made, it was yeah. a shocking idiotic compromise from the very Beginning again because there was all sorts of inter-service rivalries and some, some wanted a bomber, some wanted an observation plane, some wanted a fighter. All right, we'll build all three in one and then none of them worked. Uh-huh. Uh, the poor Wiraways were blasted out of the sky in about 10 minutes. Uh, 21 Squadron basically ceased to exist on the first day of the Rabaul invasion. Oh, exactly a couple of days before. There was an air raid before the Rabaul invasion. Then suddenly zeros started to appear and people knew that, oh, that means these aircraft are taking off from an aircraft carrier and which must be just over the horizon. So the Japanese are coming. And come they, come they did. You say that the Japanese attack on Rabaul, invasion of Rabaul, was a bit like using an elephant to crack a walnut. Was, yes. it, was it really that easy for the Japanese oh, to attack it, Rabaul? It, it is over in hours. It, it was over in hours. The Lark Force people weren't even told properly that this was the actual invasion. Some were told that it was an exercise. Some didn't even have any food on them or any kind of rations or spare am- ammunition or their haversacks or anything. And they basically broke and fled. The Japanese had had spies in Rabaul working. They worked out where the uh, sea mines were in the harbour and they just sort of sailed round them. They knew where the clear passages were. So they sailed. The Australian soldiers in the middle of the night watched these Japanese boats sail in this zigzag pattern right through the lanes in the minefield and come up to the beach. And then that was basically it. So by dawn, Lark Force basically had been broken and shattered and were dispersing on the run, knowing not having been in the jungle ever before. And suddenly they were on the run with the Japanese after them. And what became of those men of Lark Force? Many died. Uh, one of the worst Japanese atrocities of, of the war was at a place called Toll Plantation, where a hundred or so were basic uh, uh, Australian prisoners surrendered, uh, were grouped, their hands tied behind their back, led into a rubber plantation and murdered uh, with with bullet and, and bayonet. A couple survived to tell the tale. Others were dispersed. Others were on the run. And it fell to a coast watcher, by a guy by the name of Hugh McKenzie, who I think felt describes as a tall, red-headed Irishman with the temperament of a tall, red-headed Irishman. <laughs> <laughs> but thank goodness he had that because he was a coast watcher that was on the other end of New Britain, which is a long way, and he got a signal saying, can you come over and see what's happened at Rabaul? Because it's all gone silent and we, and we don't know what the hell's going on. So he boated over him a couple of days, got close to Rabaul, but all he saw was retreating Australian soldiers coming his way and said, what's happening? Oh, we're, we're, we're finished. It's all done. We've, we've been defeated and it's, it's terrible and we're on the run. And he organised a kind of this incredible kind of Pied Piper type procession of rounding these men up because they'd dispersed all through the islands. He used his local inhabitants. And the story of the Coast Watchers has to be stressed and Felt said no Coast Watcher could have survived a week without the Indigenous inhabitants, the New Guineans and over in the Solomons, Bougainville, etc., the Solomon Islanders, who remained incredibly loyal to their Coast Watchers and did the, the, the message running and the food preparation and the, um, the scouting and sometimes fought for them. With... So, so why? I mean, the, the Japanese had a good story to tell the locals there. They'd they say, you know, we're here, we're actually from the area. You've been subject as, treated as lesser peoples by a colonial occupying right. power. We're um, the new masters. We're the new masters. Yeah. Have you heard of the Greater East Asian co-prosperity uh, sphere and all of that? <laughs> this is gonna, things are going to work out much better. Yeah. Why, why were the Japanese so uh, unable to gain the loyalty of the local people on these islands? Look, t- towards the latter part of the, particularly the, the, the period the book 
deals with, particularly in some parts, they did, but it was mainly through them dropping all that niceness uh, after the first year of the Pacific War and just basically being incredibly brutal and horrible. Right, so they went over with terror or money. So, yeah, But yeah, why yeah. weren't they able to win them over? There was a lot of loyalty to the... I mean, well, I tell you what, one, one thing, and Eric felt, the Coast Watcher leader, was meticulous about that. He always said... When you need the locals' help, you pay them, and you pay them in full, and you pay them regularly. Uh, don't ever steal their food. Uh, don't raid their gardens. If you, the, you barter with them, and you pay for it. And they respected that. So it was. And the kind Japanese of, weren't so observant of such niceties. They, they right. were. They were were not, right. and especially as they got wind that some of the locals were helping the Coast Watchers, then their brutality kind of rose like this monster, murderous monster through the islands. Podcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Michael, when the Japanese invaded and occupied Rabaul, they had the Steepwater Harbour, as you say, and, mm-hmm. this, and an airstrip. This left Port Moresby open to Japanese air attack. Now, tell me about this coast watcher named Lee Vile, who proved so vital here. Lee Vile was a Melbourne boy. He was short of stature. And for some reason that I've never been able to establish, he decided to tell mum and dad, I'm going to drop out of my commerce law course, or it was, I'm going to New Guinea and I'm going to be a patrol officer with the colonial administration up there. And they said, what? And he did. And he did. <laughs> right. And he arrived in, the, I think, the, the, the early 1930s and loved it. It was one of these rare people that simply had arrived where he was supposed to be. He adored the lifestyle there of uh, wandering the tracks. Then when the Second World War came, he was immediately picked by Eric Felt into the Coast Watcher service. This was at the time when the Japanese were starting to send over aircraft in the prelude to the great Kokoda battle when they were air attacking Moresby. Um, we only had a very nominal force there. One squadron called 75 Squadron with some Kitty Hawks that had fallen into our lap by coincidence because the Americans, the, the boat carried them, basically got stranded in Botany Bay and we sort of nicked them and said, thanks, we'll have those. That's right. our, that, that, that'll form three of the new fighter squadrons. Thanks very much. 75 was sent up. They were a green squadron to um, repel the daily Japanese bomber attacks coming over to Moresby. But there was no radar. And if there was radar, the Owen Stanleys blocked it out. So they had to have someone on the other side of the Owen Stanleys. So, so Australia had its its force of Kitty Hawks in Port Moresby? Yes. And, and, and this is on the south coast of New Guinea, on one side of a Razorback... 14,000 feet they, they go up yes, to. Yes, yeah. Razorback mountain range, this massive mountain yeah. range, the Owen Stanley Ranges, and the Japanese are on the other side of that. Yes. On, on, yes. on the northern, northern coast there. Initially, they were taking off from Rabaul, which is an hour so flying away, but then they landed at Salamaua and Ley, these two small port towns. One already had an airstrip just across, much, much closer to Moresby. And how close could Levile get to the Japanese airstrip there in Salamau? He set up a Coast Watcher platform high in a tree overlooking Salamaua, and he could see the airstrip in the, in the distance with his binoculars. Then they landed there and he said, oh, I'm much too far away. So he went down the mountain and ended up being something like half a mile away from the airstrip. He could read the numbers on the zeros and what in the jungle? He's in it, the jungle. He's in the jungle, living by himself on a tr- in basically a treehouse in the jungle, being eaten alive by leeches and spiders. He had terrible tinea. He again relied on locals to supply him with uh, food. So he's there, right up close, right near this Japanese airstrip in northern New Guinea. They can hear and- his radio signals and voice signals being broadcast because they had radio direction finding equipment and they were listening, but they couldn't find him. They tried desperately to find him. There was one Japanese patrol that was under his tree hut and they rested there for an hour. They're looking for him 
he watched them and he could smell the smoke from their cigarettes wafting up to his platform and he knew that he'd be tortured to, to death. 37 Coast Watchers were captured by the Japanese during the Second World War. Not one survived. Not a single one. Well, they were all executed. All executed. Tortured all and executed. All tortured and executed, yes, as so, far as we know. So he's able then to report as the planes are taking off from this Japanese airbase. Giving the Australian fighter defence of Port Moresby at least some chance of getting up there. The Kitty Hawks were a big, slow, heavy aircraft. Very good plane, very well armed, and the Japanese Zeros were like ballet dancers. They were nimble. They could incredibly light. They were magnificent aircraft. And you couldn't take them on unless you could get onto them fly down through them, fire away, and then keep on diving. If you tried to get in a dogfight... So, so, them, so for, the, for the Kitty Hawks to be in the air already... They had to be They high had up. to be high up and they could come down. That was their yes. best chance that they That had. was their only chance of survival and Lee Vile. Day after day, he was their eyes and ears to the north of their positions and he gave them the heads up. This brings us to two of the greatest of the Coast Watchers. Jack Reed and Paul Mason, two very different men <laughs> yes. in different places. How, tell me how they worked in tandem to warn of incoming Japanese attacks. Paul Mason, who was one of the unlikeliest heroes of the war, he was short, he, had, um, he was bespectacled, he had buck teeth and he'd had malaria a few times, so his voice was rather sort of high-pitched and raspy like that. Jack Reed, on the other, other hand, was six foot tall, matinee, good, matinee idol, good looks. He was a real kind of adventurer hero. They were both positioned on Bougainville. Reed was uh, someone who did one of the other great chapters of the Coast Watch's achievements, basically rounding up and uh, organising the evacuation of civilians. Because there were a lot of civilians left over who thought they could ride out the Japanese occupation, especially a lot of the missionaries. And there was one particular missionary, which is basically nuns, American nuns, refused to evacuate when the Japanese were heading down. But And they were convinced that, oh, no, that look, you know, we'll just, you know, we'll be able to um, explain to them where we're just doing what we do here. And they were so naive. And, of course, they eventually, when the Japanese started to turn and just execute people willy-nilly, particularly the missionaries who they just suddenly said, right, all Westerners, we're going to kill. They're spying on us. We're going to basically kill them. So these big evacuations had to be organised. And Jack Reed was one of the people who organised several big roundups of these people and led them through the jungle, often for days, to a beach in the northeast of Bougainville where an American submarine had been arranged to come in and pick them up. He did it three times and got away hundreds of people. So this brings us to the Battle of Guadalcanal, this huge historic battle. Guadalcanal being the main island of the Solomon Islands, where yes. Honiara, the capital, is now. And the toehold the Americans were trying to get on Guadalcanal. Tell me about Paul Mason and his absolutely critical yes. role in yes. the Battle of Guadalcanal. So one day in early, the first week of June 1942, Paul Mason... At dawn, one day, he hears the roar of aircraft engines passing overhead, and he's quite high up. And he gets up and looks at binoculars, and there's a fleet of Japanese dive bombers heading at reasonably low altitude towards him, heading towards the southwest. He immediately fires, fires up his radio. He had heard over the airwaves, he had been listening into the conversation, he knew that the Americans were arriving <laughs> at Guadalcanal or somewhere, he didn't quite know where, but he gave this five-word signal that he broadcast initially over open voice, and his five words were, 24 bombers heading yours. And that's all he needed to say. And where did that signal go? From his radio set, it went to Moresby, then was bounced to Townsville, from Townsville to uh, Canberra. From Canberra, they shot at short wave over the Pacific, was picked up by the American base in Hawaii, and the Americans then broadcast it to their people, who that moment were disembarking on that beach at Guadalcanal, to begin the great campaign that really began to turn the tide in the Pacific. So suddenly the American uh, fleet and the USS Wasp was there just over the horizon. It had a combat air patrol of the Wildcat fighters flying around. They get a signal. We just had a signal from a coast watcher. There are 24 Japanese aircraft heading towards us. We have an hour and a half. Grace, get going. Because they'd walked ashore at this beach was actually a just completed Japanese airfield and they they took it easily, but then they were getting the rest of their army off. But they were sitting ducks because they had all these great big fat transport ships had anchored 
on the at the beach there and they were shuttling people back and forth, equipment and food and everything. Suddenly they were told, get out of there, the Japanese are coming. They pulled it up, they brought down the combat air, air, air patrol, refueled them, sent them up again at higher altitude. This Japanese bomber fleet arrived and they thought they were going to be the one who, was, who were going to be administering the surprise and they were caught red-handed. They, they didn't find the ships they were looking for. No. Instead, all they ran into fighter aircraft. Yes. American fighter aircraft. <laughs> From above. Yes. From above. And well, what happened to that bomber force? It was shot to pieces. It was shot to pieces. The Japanese couldn't believe it because they thought they had got the jump. So when you said at the beginning that Admiral Halsey had said that if it wasn't for the Coast Watchers then you wouldn't have had the successful taking of Guadalcanal. No. And that was the key battle of the uh, war in the Pacific. Yes. The, so this the is what we're talking one. about right here. When Halsey said uh, the Coast Watchers saved Guadalcanal and Guadalcanal went on to save the Pacific. Were the Americans appreciative of Paul Mason's timely warning that gave him an hour and a half to get out? Immensely so. Far more than we ever were. The Americans threw medals at the Coast Watchers. Hardly any of our Coast Watchers ever got anything. There was one female Coast Watcher, a woman called Ruby Boy, who was a lady of a certain age, way out into one of the most remotest of the Solomon Islands, on an island called Vanakoro, which is a great big volcano that juts out of the Southwest Pacific Ocean on the edge of the Solomons in this crazy typhoon belt where the weather's crazy. And all she did was give weather reports three times a day. But the Americans couldn't believe it because they didn't have a weather station. There was no satellites or anything. And the Americans needed to know well where the wind was blowing, what the currents were doing. And at one point, Ruby Boy turned off her radio after broad broadcast and then it started to glow again, indicating an incoming signal, which was very rare. And then she heard a voice, Mrs. Boy, Mrs. Boy, we know where you are and the Japanese commander is coming to get you. They knew her frequency, but they could never pinpoint. And Halsey, when the Japanese were pushed back, made a special trip. He flew in by Catalina flying boat into her little lagoon and went and he said, I want to meet this Mrs. Boy. There were a couple of proxy women who uh, weren't actually signed up, but they did such incredible work for, for the Coast Watchers. One of them was a woman, this remarkable woman named Gladys Baker. She was living on an island called Witu, about 20, mile, 20 nautical miles north of New Britain. She was a superb shot with a rifle. She was a yachtswoman. She was a map reader. She could speak the language. She had um, very, very high first aid skills. Her husband died in about 1936 of the dreaded blackwater fever, which was a horrible complication of malaria. Then she was very wealthy. She managed to take a trip every two years to Europe to pick up Jean Patou gowns and, and she'd come back and wear them around her seven-bedroom bungalow, she called it, you know, full of beautiful polished teak floors and Persian rugs and Irish crystal. But she brought all this in, but lived completely isolated. She got wind of the fact that this great retreat from Rabaul was happening and, and this desperate kind of procession of bedraggled, starving soldiers, the remnants of Lark Force, making their way to God knows what away from the Japanese, took it upon herself to sail in her yacht solo, sailed up to where the radio had told her the soldiers were, and these men were apparently lying around this uh, plantation, desperate, starving, totally terrified, convinced that they're they either going to starve to death or be captured and killed by the Japanese. A boat with a single sail comes up to the beach. This beautiful woman in, in this sort of white kind of satin blouse and, and cream perfectly pressed trousers and beautiful 1940s hair walks up the beach and says, who's in charge here? And, <laughs> and, and literally a couple of the guys thought, literally thought that they had died. And this was an angel coming towards them. Uh, who's in charge? Oh, well, I'm in charge. Oh, hello. My name's Gladys. Now, um, I have an island just over the horizon there, and I actually have an ocean-going ship. You can have it if you wish. <laughs> like begins. the angel of Mons. Was yeah, she, yes. she was just right, like the like angel, an angel of Mons. Like a movie Absolutely. star and a yacht arrives to rescue these poor, bedraggled men. Yeah, yeah. And that, and that was the, the ship was the, an inter-island trader called the Lakatoy, which she then arranged for the men to be transported over there. And they boarded the ship and... Sailed to Cairns. <laughs> then there's Sister Merle Farland. Merle Farland. Merle Farland, she, a, a nurse. Kiwi nurse, yeah. So she kind of got left behind. She was a, a nurse in a mission station. This little mission station was surrounded by several Japanese sort of bases. One of the Coast Watchers had to move from one spot to another to have his radio fixed. 
and he called in and was taken by uh, local canoe riders who are brilliant at transporting people via canoe, pulls in for a night's rest at this mission station where he's met by the uh, priest and... Um, Suddenly, this woman turns up, this Western woman, said, oh, by the way, by the way this is Merle. And then he goes, I'm sorry? And he turns around and he sees, why, why are you here? You're not supposed to be here. Oh, well, yes, I know. Everybody else left and we kind of got left behind a bit. <laughs> and he says, she probably was the only Western woman in a thousand mile square radius. And Merle was amazing. She was a trained nurse. The rest of the Westerners and the, uh, the Western doctors had fled the island. She said, well, no, no, darn it, I'm going to stay here. I, I have a job to do, administering medicine to the um, local population. That's my job. And she did incredible things, like she helped so many of the coast watchers with information, logistics. One time she'd gotten word that on the other side of her island, a B-17 had gone down in the water and there were about six or seven survivors uh, but it was literally on the other side of this island and it was a big trek. So she was awakened by the uh, priest one morning. He said, okay, you stay here and I'll go over and, and rescue them. And she said, no, you stay here. I'll go. There's no point in you going. You, you've got no first aid treatment. And he went, oh, okay, I suppose you're right. So she then she had this incredible trek being transported by canoe, then probably donkey or something, and then trekking for a couple of days over these ridgebacks of mountains, arrives on this beach to see these six US airmen, and one of them had been really badly wounded, and she patched his wounds, and then saw him off into um, a Catalina flying boat that came and picked them up after a couple of days, but she undoubtedly saved his life. What was her life like after the war? She survived this, all of this. Yes. What was her life like after? Did she talk about it? Not till about 1988, where I happened to come across an article about her in the New Zealand Herald. And there she was talking about it and quite astonished that the report had discovered a story in the uh, uh, retirement home she was living in. As in most of the coastal, particularly because they were civilians, Richard, they melted back and were forgotten about even more than people in the Defence Forces were. We, we have to talk about John F. Kennedy, who would later <laughs> become president. The story of him and how he helped rescue his crew after the wreck or wreckage of his PT boat that he was commanding in the Pacific. How does his tale fit into this story of the Coast Watchers? <laughs> So a second lieutenant, John F. F. Kennedy, was had a boring desk job and he pushed to get out of it and he decided, I want to go into the most exciting part of the Navy, the, the fast-moving PT boats. Well, they were fast, but the American PT boats were basically useless. They were made of wood. Yeah, yeah. And they were noisy too. <laughs> noisy. Yeah, yeah. They, they had petrol engines that guzzle fuel, unlike the German e-boats that were made of metal and they had diesel engines. In the yeah. South Pacific where they were used, the water when it's churned up at night gives out a, f a phosphorescent mm. glow, which completely gave away their position from anyone flying over So they're head. noisy, they leave a snail trail behind them across the water. They didn't and, have proper um, radar, didn't have proper mm. radios, they were very demoralised, they hardly sunk any Japanese ships and one big debacle of a night which was a pitch black night in August 1942 uh, Kennedy was out with his uh, squadron Kennedy's boat was spotted by a Japanese destroyer and rammed and severed in half at about two o'clock in the morning. Two of his crew of 14 die instantly. The rest are bobbing around on the bow section which hasn't quite sunk yet and they think they're going to be picked up, and they don't get picked up. They don't know what's going to happen. Dawn comes up. Kennedy says, look, we've got to get off this. There's a little island over there. We're all going to swim to it. And he did things like one of his men was really badly burnt, and he found a raft, and he put the hawser in his teeth and swum, towing this young man across to this island that bizarrely had the name Plum Pudding Island. It was a kind of a basically a desert island. There were a few coconut trees. They drank some coconut milk, and they tried to wave down any passing ships or canoes. Nobody came by. But what had happened without him? Him knowing it is a fellow called Reg Evans. And it's not a more Australian name, Richard, than Reg <laughs> Evans. Reg Evans was a coast watcher stationed on Columbangra, which was a 10 miles away, I think, maybe a bit less. But he was watching this weird kind of elongated fight happening in the middle of the night from his spot on top of this mountain. And he sees the explosion and with the telescope saw something bobbing around. Then nothing happened, went to bed, came back and still saw something bobbing around, but lost sight of that. 
And it wasn't until like something like midday that day that the Americans said, oh, by the way, we lost a PT boat in your backyard last night. He said, well, thanks for telling me. I could have got my people out hours ago. But that's what he did. He got his people out. He, he got his local scouts out and it took them a few days. And JFK had all these adventures in between, but they found him eventually. And then Evans managed to get a note via a, a completely fluent English-speaking Solomon Islander on His Majesty's service letterhead and he handed this bedraggle. He'd been there for a week and he had sores and cuts from the coral and he looked terrible and he had a beard and you could hardly see. But he just handed this this note. There was a, uh, a note for you, sir. <laughs> <laughs> and Kennedy opened and said, oh, hello. Um, we happen to notice you might be in a bit of trouble. I suggest you um, go along with this fine fine fellow here and we'll um, work out the rest. So, you know, toodle pip, Reg Evans, Coast Watcher. See you soon. <laughs> it was basically something like that. Did Kennedy remember him after the war? Oh, well, the story was kind of forgotten about until the primaries in 19, 1960 where he was coming up against Hubert Humphrey, who was doing rather well. And Kennedy needed the state. I'm not even sure what state it would have been. You, you, you might know that. West Virginia would have I been. I think you're right. It was it, the West it, Virginia primary. The West Virginia uh, primary. And his mind has said, ah, oh, I don't know, John, we kind of need something. What did you do during the war? I said, oh, there was this PT. Oh, yeah, that'll do. So that's when the story came out again. So suddenly JFK was the war hero again, and he swept the primary and won it and went on to get the nomination. The reason why that primary was so significant was because there was concern that a Catholic couldn't win. And because Kennedy won the primary in West Virginia, which was a very, very Protestant working-class state that proved to the Democratic Party's grandees that he could indeed win an election as a Catholic for the presidency. So, so from, from Reg, Reg's rescue... We get the legend of PT-109, which gets Kennedy across the line in West Virginia, and that gets you, gets you President Kennedy. So, Reg, Reg Evans can take all the credit, I think, for the election of President Kennedy. Absolutely. <laughs> now... At some stage, when th th this meeting happened, a couple of other local oarsmen were sent by Kennedy. Can you sail over? And he pointed in the distance, 38 miles away. Uh, can you sail there and tell these people I'm there and give them a note and nothing to write on? So either someone went up a tree and got a coconut or someone picked up a coconut husk and he scratched in it. Kennedy scratched in. Lieutenant Kennedy, stranded, gave it a, a location. This native oarsman knows where we are and gave him the coconut. 20 years later, when Kennedy got the president, Reg decided, oh, I remember him. I'll, I'll write him a letter. And the letter was picked up at the White House. Congratulations, Mr. Kennedy. Absolutely wonderful. Oh, P.S. By the way, I was the one who saved your life in August 1942. Yours sincerely, Reg Evans. Kennedy reaches out, arranges for him to come to come to the White House, and there are pictures of this meeting, and the press loved it, of course, and this quiet kind of middle-aged, slightly balding, slightly <laughs> bewildered accountant from Sydney, Reg Evans, was sort of gone back to do, was meeting the President of the United States, holding up the coconut. <laughs> well, this, this speaks well of the Americans and, and sadly, poorly of our, our people, doesn't it? Does, it does, absolutely. Paul Mason, the man whose warning was absolutely so critical for the Americans being able to get a foothold on Guadalcanal Island, thereby turning the whole war on the Pacific, the Coast Watcher Paul Mason. You said, again, that Admiral Halsey had said that that warning was absolutely critical for the whole... It was a turning point of the war, really, in many ways. He actually went out of his way to meet Ruby Boyd, the female Coast Watcher. Did he get to meet Paul Mason, who had delivered that critical warning? At the very end... At the very end of the story, when Mason and Reed are finally evacuated, when the tide had admittedly turned around about the kind of mid-1943, the Japanese are starting to get pushed back, Mason and Reed were finally evacuated. Somehow Halsey got wind of the fact, and he arranged for their plane to be diverted to his base ostensibly to refuel, but it was really an excuse for him to meet them. And so they get ushered off the aircraft and into the anteroom of an office. And Mason doesn't quite know what's happening. He actually thinks he's in trouble. And Halsey walks in, this big bull of a man, his nickname was Bull, and Mason stands. And Halsey holds out his hand and said, Mr. Mason, please sit down. When I'm in a room with you, I'm the one that stands. 
You've written several books now on the war in the Pacific and Australia's role in the war in the Pacific. What really strikes you about that whole period? I mean, you can see a lot of uh, sliding doors of history opening and closing here. If the landing hadn't been successful at Guadalcanal, if this so many Milne Milne Bay was was one of the ones. My God, how did how did we pull that off? Milne Bay was the first time that the Japanese were defeated on land anywhere in the Pacific, and was done solely by us, solely by Australian soldiers. If they had gotten that airstrip that close on the lower side of the Owens Owen Stanleys to Moresby. That would have been terrible. But we pulled it off. If they'd taken Port Moresby, if Japanese, the Empire of Japan had taken Port Moresby, that was it. it would have left Australia isolated. Totally, totally. They could have fitted every ship of their navy into Port Moresby and, and then some, and they could have controlled the, the sea lanes going everywhere. If Japan had kept on going, that incredible 100-day advance from Pearl Harbour, if they hadn't got victory disease, they probably could have sailed into Moresby at around February 1942 and there would be nothing to stop them. You're an Air Force reservist now, is that right? <laughs> I am. In fact, for your work as an historian, you've been made. I'm astonished because I've known you for a while, Michael. You're a squadron leader now. Does that you're actually a squadron leader? Do you get your own plane? And if so, can I have, My a, own can plane. I have a go on it? Uh, uh, Richard, if they're getting people like me to go up in the planes, surrender. All right. We're in trouble. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Thank we, you. We, we, I'm with the History and Heritage Branch doing this sort of thing, and I'm having a ball. Well, that's wonderful. Are we getting better at recognising the heroism of the people like the Coast Watchers? I think we are. And, you know, I temper this because I'm a person that hates jingoism and I hate empty patriotism. <laughs> When I grew up, I used to always go to Anzac Day and I remember that the participants outnumbered the spectators and there are only a few people watching, but all these thousands of fellows from the First and Second World War was sort of, I come from Melbourne, so it was a pilgrimage up St Kilda Road to the Shrine and it was so quiet and so dignified and it was simply a, it was an opportunity for them to remember and to give thanks and... Have a for, beer and a game or two up at the end of the day. That's yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and I, I actually blame John Howard in a lot of ways because things changed under him. Politicians weren't involved with it much up till then. And he, look, he had to do something to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. But I think that started a kind of a change of flavour of it. And working with History and Heritage with the Royal Australian Air Force, I'm very, very uh, concerned not to glorify war, but to genuinely commemorate it. Michael, what an amazing story. I've never heard the story before. It's a wonderful story told with enormous flair. Thank you so much. Thanks, Richard. Michael Veach is the author of Australia's Secret Army, the story of the Coast Watchers, the unsung heroes of Australia's armed forces. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Last month I spent $65 on subscription services and I only watched one show. My own. And uh, this month I spent $85 on beauty products for my hair and skin and I didn't even get to show it off to anyone because I spent the entire month on the couch watching my own show. Hussain, and in 2021, I presented a series of The Pineapple Project all about being frugal, and I learned a lot. But I've realised since that there are huge areas of my life that we didn't get to cover, and it's showing up on my bank statement, big time. I need help. Quick. And by the sounds of it, you do too. So, this season of The Pineapple Project, we're getting even more frugal. So let's tweak our streaming subscriptions. Budget out our beauty regimens. Date without debt. And heaps more. New Pineapple Project. Find us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you pod. 